When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 hello. I'm Gary Bain. I'm once more on Zoom with the delectable Peter Hart. Hi, hi, hi. And uh, today, Pete, we're doing uh, another in the series on the Arras Air War. And today it's, uh, it's about learning to fly. Learning to fly. That sounds right excited. I, I, feel, yeah. I feel particularly Yorkshire today because I'm meeting a Yorkshire chum tonight. So I'm, I'm going for accent. But bro- on Hampstead Heath again. Uh, it's very... It's, it's the same pub where I caught COVID. Yeah, I thought. I thought. Where should I take James? I thought. I know. I'll take him to Southampton Row or Arms or whatever it is and give him COVID. Aye, aye. So, but he's, he's strong at arm and thick in head. Is James? Excellent. Like all other Yorkshiremen. Well, moving on quickly. So the expansion of the uh, Royal Flying Corps. That was too late. <laughs> I've already <laughs> insulted half Yorkshire. Yeah. The mail. Well, the expansion of the Royal Flying Corps to carry out the vast expansion of their role since the start of the war, it was hampered by severe problems in training and adequate supply of pilots and observers, which actually makes sense if you think about it. Well, yeah, if you're going, Even, to, if you're going to have a huge expansion, you're going to need a lot more of, the, of those highly skilled uh, crews. Uh, you know, they're, 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 I mean, flying an aeroplane isn't something you can just do, is it? Well, even just standing still to replace the crews they'd lost in action, that's the challenge. And yet, Field Marshal Hay... We like him. Your favourite. He is my favourite. And Brigadier Hugh Trenchard... Also mm, a favourite. Yeah, he's lovely. They envisaged up to 106 squadrons with 95 <laughs> reserve squadrons being needed before the end of the the end of the war. Now, Bloody hell, now, if you'll pardon the expression. Well, yeah, if you just look at how it had grown, it was four squadrons, the R. Royal Flying Corps, in 1914. It was 12 squadrons by the time of the Battle of Luce in uh, September 15. It's 27 squadrons in July by the time of the Somme and it's 40 squadrons in March 1917, which was just before the Battle of Arras. That's, that's a hell of a rate. I would say that's 10 times as big. Wow. My maths. It's, uh, I know. It's, it's coming impressive. On. It's really coming on, you know. I, I'm a late learner. <laughs> Very late. Very late, yeah. Too late. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, now... Um, uh, do you think? Do you think many people could fly before the the, the war? Um, uh... No, no, no. I mean, very few could. Um, in addition, almost all the existing pilots had been sent on active service on the outbreak of war. Now, I can see a problem here. Well, that problem is that problem apparent to you as well, Gary? Well, as a result, there's a, a crippling shortage of instructors who are able to train the new generations of pilots. Yeah, it's not an intuitive skill flying. In fact, to be honest. In 1914, 15, 16, they barely understood it. Uh, well, one way they went on was if something worked, they'd do it again. And if it didn't work, they were dead. And, it's <laughs> and the, the other thing is the training aircraft, they're not mechanically reliable at all. And, 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 and fatalities in training are high. And the slightest mistake could, could, uh, could bring you an end to your flying career. 
Now, despite the risks, the, the Royal Flying Corps was an attractive op option for young men. It offered a sort of, <laughs> it offered a sort of glamour in sharp contrast to the muddy squalor of the trenches. And some, fascinated by the chance of flying, they volunteered directly straight from school. Well, flying was, I mean, if you think about how exciting it must have been, and especially to a schoolboy, oh, well, I'll be up in the skies, cavalry of the clouds, that kind of thing, yeah. Um, uh, there was also the fact that, that some of them were discontented at the length of time their infantry training was taking, and they were seeking a quicker route out to the front. I think people Others, like Albert Ball were like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, others just found themselves in a backwater from which they wished to escape. Yeah, just, just some posting they didn't like. They didn't seem to get any action. They didn't seem to... And yet they were bored and they'd look in Yorkshire. Yorkshire. <laughs> Why are we down on Yorkshire today? Yeah. All right, Clacton. <laughs> Where's Clacton? Is that in Lincolnshire? Essex. Oh, Essex. Oh, well. Oh. Right. Now one amongst many, uh, a Lieutenant Gilbert Preston, had already ha had experience of action with the dismounted yeomanry at Gallipoli, where he'd lost the sight of his left eye. Now, bear this in mind for a moment, because you've got a problem with your left eye. Yeah, it's lazy, I've got like a, the rest of I've me. Got, <laughs> I've got a problem with my right eye. And that's now, lazy. Now, young Gilbert Preston, on emerging from hospital... He, uh, he then served as a forward observation officer with the Royal Artillery. I see but those he, ships. He, he, then, he then conceived a desire to join the uh, Royal Flying Corps to pursue what was essentially the same task from the skies above as he was doing for the artillery. And you're going to be Second Lieutenant Gilbert Preston. This is funny because I had, as you know, I went to, for a checkup on my eyes at the hospital yesterday, so this comes very close to home. <coughs> I thought that I'd uh, fooled the doctor because after I'd read the reading board with my right eye, he turned me to the window and said, tell me what you see out of the window. I knew <laughs> that I would have to come back to reading the eye chart, so I memorised all of the lines on the board. When I finished describing what I'd seen out of the window, he swung me round and covered my right eye and said, Will you continue reading the eye chart? I knew what was coming, so I started to read the board. Suddenly he said, You're blind in that eye, aren't you? I said, No, I know, not quite, he told me, and cover your right eye and look again at the chart. While I've been looking out the window, and unknown to me, he, the bastard, I'm putting that in, he had turned the chart over, and the only single letter on that chart was the letter E. I was heartsick, as I thought my own chances were non-existent. He then announced, Don't take it too much to heart, because I have orders to send you to the flying corps, whether you can see or not. <laughs> To my disappointment, he, he informed me that I could not qualify as a pilot and I would go to France as an observer, hence the artillery remark. Uh, an observer. So that's so he'd be fine as long as everything was happening on the uh, right-hand right side. side of the aircraft. Which is very similar to my own personal situation. Whereas you, Gary... I'd be all right, but we'd have to go in tandem because yeah. I could see to the left and you could see to the right. <laughs> I see now, no ships. <laughs> it's interesting that the optician used uh, one of those Yorkshire eye tests because yeah. it's like, eh? Yeah. Ah, the next one would have been I. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I don't remember. Now, the social mix of cadets, it sort of gradually broadened out as pre-war snobbery succumbed to the, the pragmatism required in a global conflict. Yet existing class prejudices... Prejudices? It's not the only prejudice well, this bastard's got. Well, still very much in evidence. And you're going to be Lieutenant Dudley McCurgill. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm apologising in advance for, for a couple of references in this. Uh, it, this is a horrible quote, but not everybody was nice in the First World War. He, uh, Dudley McCurgill says this. There are some perfectly appalling people here now. Their intonation is terrible, and you can pick out hairdressers, Jews who would sell tobacco, the typical shop assistant attendant, the comic turn men at a very provincial show, and the very greasy mechanic type. These are the class of fellows from cadet schools, mostly conscripts, and hardly one of them has any pretense of being a gentleman. There are still a very good crowd of observers, and we keep to ourselves. I'm sorry about that accent, but I just thought I'd express my opinion in Mr. McCurgo. 
What accent was it? That was a horrible man accident. Accent. Mm, accident. You got that spot on. Now, whatever their origins, the uh, prospective pilots were sent to an officer cadet training school where they were put through a month of traditional military basic training, enlivened as ever by drill sessions under as you describe them, grizzled NCOs. Well, yeah, and, and this is the British Army. Whatever happens, you have to go through a basic military training. And I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Francis Penny. I seem to be the only one working this morning, Gary. You're working very hard today. We soon settled down to the task in hand, that of attempting to digest that prodigious volume known as military law, which contains every conceivable subject that an officer must know. Correct words of command in drill, practical demonstrations, in that we were expected to take charge of small and large groups. This was not a problem to me, having had a considerable experience as an NCO in the Australian <laughs> Imperial Force. <laughs> For drill and discipline, we had Sergeant Major Sunshine, one-time champion heavyweight boxer in the British Army, a real Martinet and stickler for discipline in every way, even to making sure that on the first bugle call, we were promptly out of bed for PT and drilling sessions. <laughs> Some of our cadets resented this intrusion so early in the morning. <laughs> Can I just check, did he forget he was Australian? Completely forgot. That's what the British Army does to you. It takes you in whatever you are, Gary, and makes you into a... a an Australian. An, no, no, he was in Australia. He becomes a normal officer. Oh, dear. <laughs> dear. In the words of Plato, dear God, this podcast's going badly. And it seems to be all my fault. Now, the young pilots and observers soon become aware of the increasing levels of casualties being suffered by the Royal Flying Corps on the Western Front. Rumours are swirling around, but there's plenty of confirmation from the highest level. And I'm going to be, and I'm going to pronounce this name as it's spelt, but it may not be right. I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Frederick Ortweiler of the RFC. Nice that you decided to do a spot of work, Gary. Well, I, I aim to please. It's very long as well. Tells are already about concerning the number of friends and relatives of the fellows who have got killed fatally in the RHC. <laughs> yeah. And other stories of a nasty nature. Wonder how long it will take for me to get the wind up. Cheering news today in Parliament. 20% of the RFC become casualties in a week and 20.1% are killed in six weeks. We're all doomed. We're doomed! <laughs> I like Ottweiler. Uh, he's, a, he's a character. Now, as the training goes on, uh, the young cadets, they go from uh, basic training to the School of Aeronautics uh, at uh, the Oxford University or Reading. Um, and here they're kitted out with their new Royal Flying Corps uniforms. And they're very different, aren't they, Gaza, from uh, conventional army tunics. And I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Ray Raymond Brownell of the RFC. We cadets now wore our new RFC uniforms, maternity jackets as they are rudely called. And apart from the Sam Brown belt, we are only distinguishable from officers by a broad white cap band. The double, he's, remember he's a cadet, the double breast tunic was just the thing for cold weather. And as they hooked up at the neck, no collar or tie was worn. They were very useful when was cutting things when one was cutting things a bit fine for morning parade. Apart from our compulsory attendance at lectures and the closing of the college gates at eleven PM, we, we were treated like university students. It was up to us whether we did any study or work at all. Ah, remember your time at university, Gary? That was just like that, wasn't it? Don't look at me like that. Most were, like me, so keen to get through that study was of paramount importance. However, it was great to be living like a normal human being again and more exciting still to think that within a short time I would be a fully-fledged officer. Yes. Hmm. Now, at the schools in Oxford and Reading, they were trained in the practical skills associated with flying. What are they? Which included what, things what, such what? as oh. map reading... Elementary rigging, rigging in the rigging. No, that's a different, that's different service. He said helpfully. Um, wireless signalling using Morse code buzzers. Bzz. Flying instruments. That's a that's a, an, an obvious one. I would have thought. Yeah. The workings of uh, the engines upon which they would rely for their lives. Yeah, you need to have a, some knowledge, don't you? Yeah, photographic reconnaissance work photographic interpretation, 
contact patrol methods and methods of artillery registration. That's that's a huge amount that they're they're having to learn. Yeah. And uh, once more, because you're you're earning your crust today, you're going to be Second Lieutenant Raymond Brownell. The syllabus for this uh, School of Aeronautics appeared to me to be <coughs> rather frightening. We had to become fully conversant with the technical details of eight different types of engines, and w- and other subjects were general flying. Oh, never heard of him. I thought it was General Trenchard. Aircraft rigging, theory of flight, bombs, instruments, more signalling and artillery cooperation. The latter two subjects, uh, the two latter subjects, caused me no worry as I was already fully conversant with them. But the inards of the engines had never interested me and the thought of a stiff examination at the end of the course filled me with dread. We were told that the course was to be of two months' duration, but towards the end of the third week, we were informed that it was to be considerably shortened. So far as I was concerned, this meant intensive engine swatting. Uh, they're, they're accelerating the training because there's such a pressing need at the front. Hmm. Mm. Now, innards. 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 Yeah, it's a mechanical term. Is it? Yeah, not innards. 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 <laughs> just just mentioning it. Now, a working knowledge of artillery observation was a vital skill for Army cooperation pilots, but for most of the cadets, it was a new experience. One of the training tools was an early simulator. Stimulator. Simulator. It's heard. Providing valuable experience, uh, which tried to get them as close to reality as was then possible. And I'm once more going to be Second Lieutenant Frederick Ortweiler. In a large room, led out on the floor, was a model of the Ypres salient and re-entrant by a Mazine. Made exactly as it would be seen from an aeroplane eight to 10,000 feet up. With a squared map, it was possible to pick out all the various roads, etc. And we were given practice in picking out points on the map. Then, by a system of little lights in the model, we were made to imagine that a battery was firing on a target and we were correcting. We would first be shown the target by having it lit up. Then a flash would appear as the battery fired and another where the shot fell. Then we would have to send corrections over the buzzer till an OK was registered and the shoot finished. Now, uh, young Orweiler, um, he has the privilege of uh, of getting a lecture from a senior uh, non-commissioned officer on the general standards of behaviour and discipline that would be expected of an officer in the Royal Flying Corps. And then once again, as we say, you'd be, you're going to be young Ottweiler. There are many tips to pick up. His last remark was his best. And if you must go out with a girl who's a little more than she ought to be, for God's sake, do it after dark. Oh. Excellent advice. <laughs> Time-honoured advice from that grisly, grusty, crusty, grisly old NCO. Now, um, not many officers would have time for the pleasures of the flesh. <laughs> uh, they got their nose pretty firmly to the grindstone, wouldn't they have that? I mean, that's fair. Now, um, at the end, uh, it's almost like a public school speech day, which still quite a few of them would have been familiar with, certainly that Art McCurgo or whatever his name was. Uh, a senior officer would be brought in to do sort of the the, uh, the the speech the school speech days pontification um and uh, you can imagine that the cadets sort of sat there looking at him with a sort of blank incomprehension uh thinking who is this arse uh, and uh, for Ottweiler, what what the senior officer the general had to say it wasn't very encouraging and uh, you're going to be Ottweiler or Ottweiler one of the two a general said some very cheerful things the funny part was that the more he tried to mitigate the outlook he gave us, the worse he made it. At first he suggested that we might get killed. Then, as though that were more cheering, he hazarded the suggestion that a few of us might survive. Oh, what? That's inspirational. <laughs> it is. After they finished the course at uh, Reading or Oxford, they sent off for practical flying train uh, training at one of the uh, f- uh, preliminary flying training schools. Now, the best known of them is quite near my ass, ass in East Finchley, and that's the Hendon Airfield in North uh, North London. It's the RF Museum and a big council estate now. Uh, it had been the home of huge aerial sort of flying displays, which had drawn huge crowds. It was really uh, just such an exciting place in them days. 
Fellows, and it had some of the pioneers of um, uh, British aviation, uh, and it had been colonised by the army uh, to, uh, to, to sort of get a stream of new pilots to go to the front. Now, uh, to take, so what happens? What happens? Well, the, the first stage in the training process was a, a sort of first familiarisation flight in an aircraft. Even in 1917, the techniques of aircraft design had moved on a pace, and the aircraft used for training were already, already thoroughly old-fashioned. Although they certainly looked dangerous, in some ways their limited performance provided a kind of safety net. That's because if they crashed, they'd do it slowly. So, the, um, <laughs> And uh, I'll go to... I'm going to be second lieutenant Raymond Brownell, RFC, and he's talking about these training aircraft. He says, the Morris Farman biplanes, known as the Shorthorns and the Longhorns, which even then were regarded as somewhat prehistoric. They were pusher types with piano wire supported wings, out in front of which was a box-like open nacelle with seats in tandem for the pupil and instructor. The 70-horsepower Renault engine with four-bladed propeller was immediately behind. The Morris Farnham Longhorn differed from the Shorthorn in that the elevators were placed out in front on projecting booms, whereas in the Shorthorn, the pilot and passenger were perched right out in front of everything and there was nothing from which to judge horizontal balance. The elevator and control surfaces were right at the tail end, and the normal flying speed, now hold on to your hat here, Gary, was 55 to 60 miles per hour. These strange-looking uh, uh, aircraft, commonly known as the Rumpety, Rumpety, Bumpety, Rumpety, Bumpety, Rumpety, Bumpety, Rumpump, just Rumpety, staggered around the sky and were capable of taking an extraordinary amount of punishment. As you said, if they crash, they crash slowly. That's very slow, even for the time, isn't it? It is. Hmm. Now, you can't authentically recreate the sense of wonder that they felt. Flying in 1917 was an almost unique experience. If you think about it, yeah. hardly anyone had been up aloft in an aeroplane. Yeah. Unless you're in the army, basically, or navy, yeah, Royal Naval Air Service. Now, uh, <clears throat> at last, they, they can believe a man can fly, if you like, um, and and it it it's sort of a defining moment for, well, sadly, what little remains of their lives for a lot of them. Uh, but one who does survive, and you're going to be him now, is uh, our favourite Gary. And there's a nice little short quote coming up from Second Lieutenant Frederick Ortweiler. Spoiler there, Pete. Oh yeah, sorry. Dressed up in a flying coat, gauntlets, goggles and crash helmet and mounted the bus for my first flip. Contact! And after a few spurts of the engine, bounded off over the ground all out. The joystick jerking and the rudder bar swinging. You and, gradually, your, you and your jerking joystick. Gradually, the jolting became less and finally ceased. And as the ground rushing beneath began to pass more slowly and included trees, I realised that we were off. Gradually, the view included more and more fields and houses, and the landscape seemed scarcely to move and just swung about like a slow compass card pivoted on the roaring prop and motor in front. The slipstream and the roar of the motor, before considered a nuisance, now feels like the very lifeblood. The sensation is one of complete comfort and security, unless you imagine that the planes might give way, the motor fall out, or the controls break. Not a lot to worry about then, Gary. But speculation shows that such a contingency is unlikely. Hmm. Height does not trouble at all. The only other consideration is, can I control the machine and write her if she suddenly falls sideways or forwards? That feeling will no doubt soon come. I felt perfectly at home all the while. I watched and felt the controls and tried to reason out their movements, watched the rev indicator, felt the tension of the flying and landing wires, examined the ground from the point of view of forced landings and was perfectly happy. Then suddenly the nose went steep down, the engine stopped, the horizon rose up in front and we began to glide spirally downwards. The machine banked over steeply and we seemed to be slowly pivoting round on the tip of the inner wing. Gradually the trees rose up to meet us, the ground passed quickly beneath us, the joystick was pulled well back and with a slight jolt we bounded back to the hangars. The hole left me singularly unimpressed. There was a time when I used to get excited merely watching an aviator about to ascend at Hendon. 
Now I feel absolutely unmoved by an actual flight. Right through, I was as warm as toast and as happy as a lark. The flight reached 2,500 feet and lasted 28 minutes. It seemed like five minutes. Yeah, I think he's playing it a bit cool there, Custy. The the, uh, the talk does talk about a lot of his worries. <laughs> well, I was I was worried he might not survive, and then I remembered your spoiler at the start. Well, of course he survived, or he wouldn't have left an account of it. Oh. <laughs> now, uh, a couple of days later, all while he's up again with the, with his instructor because these are they're dual dual flights. Of course they are. And on uh, this flight, he actually takes control for a little while of the uh, of the, the aircraft. These are training aircraft, uh, and they're equipped with a dual set of controls. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And so the pupil can fly, but in the end, the, the instructor has dominance. He can take control of the whole aircraft. Uh, it's a moment of danger and uncertainty. Anyway, you're going to be, again, uh, young Altweiler. Why do I call him Altweiler? Altweiler. Took control for a bit. But Alan frequently had to yank the stick about and cut off the engine to tell me my thoughts, e.g. climbing her too much on the turns, not getting out of bank soon enough, too much rudder, etc. Now, Alan, After a number, Alan's the instructor. That's who that is, yeah. After a number of circuits, he took control and brought her down again. When we had finished, he told me that I had control of it practically all the time and was doing all right. Yeah, well, uh, that's a common instructor's uh, trick. Uh, they tell you that they actually do more than you think. The training program's still very ad hoc, uh, and, and a lot of the instructors themselves have only been flying a year or so, and they don't really know what they're doing. It's a bit like us and podcasts. Um, the, 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 as I say, trial and error. If it doesn't kill you, it's, it's added to their repertoire of flying tricks. Uh, and if it does kill you, presumably it's not. No, that's that's pretty well the end of that, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of them have, a, they, they have trouble passing on the knowledge because it's been haphazardly uh, acquired. Um, so uh, the other thing is, how do they speak to each other in the air? Now, what's the well, problem? Unless you unless you switch off the engine, uh, you know, which which in itself was a risky undertaking, as it might not restart. There's there's no chance of being heard given a noise. So so communication was non-verbal. What do you mean they, non-verbal? 
they would tap the pupil on the right or left shoulder to indicate a right or left turn. A light tap on the top of the head meant put the nose down to descend. And a tap on the back of the neck meant pull the control column back and climb. Now, a number <laughs> I, of people. I bet there's another. I bet there's another yeah. signal. Uh, a number of them noticed that a good clout on the head meant that they'd done something really wrong and were liable to be uh, soundly ticked off on landing. Um, now, what do you think it's like for the instructors? Just let's put us in their shoes for a while. What do you think it's like? Well, they, they, they're placed under an incredible amount of strain by the requirements to, to both train and pass more and more pilots to service the needs of the Army on the Western Front. Some of the instructors found themselves flying up to eight hours of dual instruction in a day. And do you think it's safe, uh, dual instruction? You've got ultimate control, but a, 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 a hun... Well, no, what? you... It, it's. Uh, I was a driving instructor for a period of time, and and you you have to trust the individual not to do something silly, and and humans do sometimes do something silly. I've noticed this. Yeah. Uh, so and, have I. And oh, what do you mean, brother? Anyway, however conscientious the instructors might start, you know, they might be great at the start. I think the teaching often deteriorates. Uh, you get a carelessness that's born of, of exhaustion, weariness, whatever you want to call it. And that leads to a proliferation of accidents. Um, and the other thing is, do they have the time to, to tailor their teaching to the the huge variety of needs of different pupils because each pupil might be good at different things need different things i mean have they got time to tailor it not really not really uh, how, how do you think the instructors see the pupils well they they begin to refer to them as uh, and it's only sort of half in jest as huns the enemy uh, which was a derogatory name for the germans yeah they saw them as the enemy and they they feared exposure to their ham-fisted flying yeah, and, and what do you think they do? And this is why I said uh, Alan, uh, or Wilder's instructor, might have been fooling him. What do you think that some instructors at the end of their tether would do? Well, they, 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 they take the minimum of chances and, and they would often take over the controls for all the dangerous uh, passages of the flight, particularly, of course, landing. Well, I don't blame them. I don't blame them at all. Now, I'm going to be the unpleasant swine that is Lieutenant Dudley McCurgow. Uh, I apologise to any members of his family listening. My instructor is useless. I have just been up with him for 15 minutes and he will not let you have control at all. So I'm going to have an extremely good try to get changed onto another instructor today. I learnt more in 12 minutes with another fellow than I have in an hour and three quarters with my frequent instructor. It's absolutely a waste of time. Now, uh, that's unfair to that quote. It's the other quote I didn't really like. That's a perfectly normal quote there. But what's interesting is the short periods of time. <laughs> An hour and three quarters. Uh, that's not... Yeah, but they're, they're having not, to take shortcuts. It, it, it's, th this is not well-thought-out training process. No, no, no. A conscientious instructor might legitimately push through a pupil that he felt was a natural pilot. But shamefully, some instructors abrogated all responsibility and just pushed pupils through as fast as possible, regardless of their now, why ability. Is, why is this a problem? What is wrong with pushing a, a pupil through? And the answer is, what lies ahead for, for, for every pilot? What lies ahead of them before they pass out? Well, it's, it, it, why you are putting people into... into uh, potentially combat situations without adequate training to, to deal with but it. But even before p combat plane, they've got to fly solo. There's a f before they pass out, there's a solo flight. And, 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 and some instructors would rather, as a, 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 a pupil, risk death flying a solo flight before they're ready than train them properly. They, they, they just didn't want any more dual instruction with a bad pupil. They'd send them up to, to, to fly a solo when they clearly weren't ready. That's appalling, isn't it? That is appalling and uh, horrific as well. I mean, there must have been a number of deaths as a result. There were a lot of deaths. And I'm going to be Second Lieutenant Raymond Brownell again. Um, in just over one week, I'd been given only nine short instructional flights. On my last flight, I was handling the controls and was presumably making the landings. Note the doubt. 
However, I felt that my instructor was actually putting the machine down himself. On the last landing, I decided to find out by taking my hands off the controls altogether. The resulting landing was a poor one, and Turner ticked me off properly, that's Turner's his instructor, for being a proper, uh, sorry, for being a bloody fool and making a bad landing. I said, as a matter of fact, you made the landing yourself. I did not have my hands on the controls. He yelled, I suppose you think you could do better yourself. Rather nettled, I said, yes. And with that, he undid his seatbelt, jumped out and said, well, take her off yourself. That staggered me for a moment as I realised I had not received more than a bare two hours dual instruction altogether. Not admitting that I was frightened out of my life, however, I decided to have a go at it and attempt my first solo. I took off very carefully, I bet he bloody did. I took off very carefully and took a long time to climb up to 1,000 feet before daring to make my first turn. This because on your turning you can stall and if you stall you've had it. Then it took me just on an hour to pluck up another, enough, courage, enough courage to come down and make my first landing. I bumped rather solidly, but had enough sense to put my engine on and go round again. So what he means is he bounced. So as he came in, he comes in too fast. So he bounces and he takes off again and goes round. I repeated this performance twice more and finally decided, as it was getting dark, that whatever happened, I would not put my, my engine on again on coming down the third time. The last landing I made was a very good one, and I taxied in feeling quite pleased with myself, although the, the comments from Lieutenant Turner, his instructor, were anything but complimentary. But I did not mind, as I had completed my first solo and had not broken anything, no doubt more by good luck than good management. And I find that tale, frankly, horrific. His instructor was appalling. Um, you're not supposed to lose... I mean, I I'm, I'm quite sure that Brownell was irritated to him, uh, but uh, you, you, if you're irritated with a person, you, you, you don't send them off to their possible death, do you? No, not often. You're just wishing for the opportunity to send me off to my hmm. death. Now, as if to underline the seriousness of the risks that they're taking, Lieutenant Ortweiler saw one of his fellow Huns pile his aircraft into the ground in a spectacular crash in a neighbouring field during his first solo flight. And I'm once more going to be Second Lieutenant Frederick Ortweiler. I imagined him to be in frightful condition, but in a few seconds I saw a figure walking about and found that he had not received a scratch. When he returned, he mentioned how his crash helmet had taken the shock, whereupon I, who was just about to go up in a balaclava woolen helmet, snatched his from him and donned it myself. Now, it's not surprising there's a lot of fatalities uh, in training with, 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 with this sort of ramshackle training. Um, these old Morris farmers, we've said that they're quite forgiving. They, 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 they crash slowly but uh, and they take a lot of punishment. But if you crash from altitude you're still going to get a serious injury or death unless you're very, very lucky. Uh, it's a dangerous business. And, and let's let's look at your own as, uh, as Lieutenant Frederick Ortweiler. Let's look at your first solo flight. What's that like for you, uh, Gary, in your role as Ortweiler? Got into the Azani solo bus and set off on my first solo circuit. Immediately she got off the ground, I noticed that the engine was not pulling properly, for I was flying with the joystick well back in my stomach, and yet she scarcely rose. After I'd got out a little way, I attempted to turn, and immediately I began to lose height till I saw myself making straight for a tree. So I put the nose down and gave her a desperate yank back, with the result that I just cleared the tree, but nearly stalled in the attempt." Thence floundered across the aerodrome and uh, started a left-hand turn to get back. She again started to lose height, so heaved the joystick still further back into my tummy and nearly stalled her. Finally, switched off and sped down to the aerodrome, but having rather misjudged it and making slap for another of the ubiquitous trees, pulled her nose up and switched on and off. A silly thing to do as it did not give me enough flying speed and nearly stalled me. Missed the tree by inches, according to the accounts of eyewitnesses, and effected a moderate landing. Taxied back to find Alan, his instructor, simply quaking with mixed horror and surprise and almost beside himself with disgust. Mr Warren, the boss, merely put his hand to his heart and sighed. 
The other instructors and pupils were white with fear and avowed it all the best nerve tonic they had ever had. <laughs> it was only then that I realised what I had done, and during the ensuing half hour, the wind sought to gather within me. One pupil drew my attention to the significance of a remark I made just as I went off. No flowers by request! A remark made in jest almost fulfilled. Uh, that's uh, that's just a terrible term. What's the difference between stalling when you're uh, when you if you drive back? You know, when you were a driving instructor out on the road and your uh, your pupil stalled. What's the difference between a stall in a car and a stall in an aircraft? Uh, well, in a car, you generally don't plumb it towards the earth. <laughs> that's it. Stalling a car is usually just embarrassing. Stalling an airplane means yeah, blunk. Oh. Well, the engine wouldn't be on, would it? <laughs> right um, now, um, uh, what? what it, it's uh, some might find it amazing that Altweiler was immediately sent back up into the air. Now, what's the principle they're operating on here? It's a very common. It comes from riding. What's the principle that's going on? Well, they're, they're worried about losing their, their nerve. So, you know, if you fall off a horse, the the best uh, option is to get straight back on and try again, because otherwise, you might not. Um, so, so uh, you mean it's you the mean old if adage. you don't face it straight away, that then the you might never face it. Yeah, you it'll get a grip on you. Yeah, so yeah. you're going to again be uh, well. He's a bit of a star of this podcast, uh, Young Otweiler. I think I'm getting this from John Otway. Ot, yeah, Otweiler. Sorry, we like John Otway. After half an hour, during which the engine was repaired, went up for another solo circuit and did all right. So went up for my ticket did figures of eight until a white flag was waved and then did one more went well outside the aerodrome turned round nose down cut off and made an okay landing right by the mark without stopping taxied back and took off again repeating the evolution and at the end of another five figure eights came in and made an a1 landing then up and did a circuit and vol planed down mm. from 550 feet did well but landed with rather a bump. While I still had the engine ticking over, young Warren and Alan ran up and congratulated me. And then when I texted up to the hangars, I was greeted by the other instructors. A great day. Whatever you survive makes you stronger, I suppose. Well, what is this ticket of which you speak, Gary? Or, or sorry, Mr. Well, it's, it's the basic flying certificate test, which is administered by the Royal Aero Club, uh, which is a civilian organisation. And it meant Ortweiler was a registered qualified pilot. Now, now, all pilots had to get their ticket, whether they were military or civilian. Now, is this the end of their flying training? No. No, no. They're, they're sent for training on the new RE-8. That's if they, they're going to be not scouts, but they're going to... Be, and we're, we're concentrating on the... Uh, it's the, the core machines. Uh, so these are the ones yeah. are going to do artillery observation photography. Uh, the RE-8. Uh, now, is that fitted for, for dual controls? I uh, don't think so. No, and the training process becomes almost farcical. They were taken for a brief flight in the rear cockpit from where they could look over the instructor's shoulder to see the various controls, instruments and gauges. Now, this is far from an ideal form of instruction and the numerous accidents fuelled the rumours that we've mentioned previously we in have, other podcasts. We did mention that, yeah. That the RE8 were difficult to fly. Well, it would be if you hadn't flown one. Yes, <laughs> 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 and you didn't know how to, yeah. So, now, the pilots yeah. who showed the most promise were assigned to scouts. Many Ooh. were entranced by rumours of how a marvellous new aircraft, and, and they're referring to the Sopwith Camel, yeah. that would surely sweep the Germans once and for all from the skies. Well, now, the rumours are true that the, the Sopwith Camel and the SE-5 are on the way. Uh, but... Uh, the rumours are a bit irrelevant, really, uh, because uh, in actual fact, those aircraft are both delayed and most of the people training at the time we're talking about, time runs out, uh, don't, 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 doesn't it? Yeah, uh, it, it just runs out and that, that's not what they get. And I'm going to be uh, Lieutenant uh, Stanton Waltho, quite an unusual name, Rolf Lyonkor. And he, I'll, I'll do that. Someone brought the news. Sopwith has produced a, a machine with 130 horsepower engine it'll do 130 miles per hour level and climbs 10,000 feet in six minutes it has two guns shooting through the prop 
the camel rumour created a sensation. Everyone delayed graduation until a miracle was attainable and they could go out in a machine which would assure them a name to be spoken of with Bull, Lano Hawker, Immelman and Bulker. For some of us, the camel was still far away, and with the air throbbing with the news of the arrival, at any moment of seven brand-new camels, we miserably made our way overseas on the poor old Sropworth one-and-a-half strutter, the greatest named aircraft in the history of the world. That's why you gave me that quote to read. Now, how fast was the training aircraft? Uh, was it 45 to 55 mile an hour? It was. Something like that? It was. So these machines are twice as fast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, they, 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 they're not having the time to practice on the sort of aircraft that they're going to fly over France. The training is not yet sufficiently sorted, is it? Um, no. The, 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 do you think even the say the scout pilots or i mean if they're in an army or cooperation machine that has to escape quickly uh, did they practice stunting no no it's actually frowned upon now the the inevitable results that that the the very many maneuvers that you're referring to that are essential to escape sudden danger they're totally foreign to new pilots so they can't do uh, it no they, they've got a lot to learn they've got to learn it quickly and actually they've got to learn it on the job oh, wow well, you have to learn a lot of things in life on the job. Now, there was... You see, I ignored that. <laughs> now, there's hope for the future. The RFC was about to, to have its whole training programme overhauled and invigorated under the influence of the radical ideas of Major Robert Smith Barry. He's a, now, he's a, 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 he has a real influence, doesn't he? Yeah, he's given a free reign in developing a new approach to teaching combat flying on his appointment to command the 1st Reserve Squadron at Gospel in December 1916. Now, now it, Smith uh, Barry... Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, um, we haven't mentioned Smith Barry before, so so where's he come from? Uh, well, it, he, he'd had personal uh, flying experience combat of his flying. own. Combat flying, yeah. Yeah, he'd been a combat pilot. I thought he'd written uh, Peter Pan, but yeah. apparently not. <laughs> no, that was that was someone else going. <laughs> so he used his his combat flying experience to come up with a, a a really radical new training system, and it sought to equip the new pilot with everything they'd need to know. And you're going to be Second Lieutenant Keith Jock. The words danger and nerves must not form part of the instructor's vocabulary. Nothing that a pupil may do in the air is dangerous. If he knows what he was doing and what the result will be, almost all accidents are caused by ignorance. And if, instead of telling a pupil that a manoeuvre is dangerous, he is taught how to do it, his instinct of self-preservation will do the rest. So in other words, you've got to practice the very things that, that you fear and that might kill you. So, for instance, this is like the spin where the, the aircraft sort of turns around on its axis falls to the ground in a sort you've got to learn how to do it um now how do how do they start this process of teaching them um well they start with the, the basic flying training using the the relatively high powered and this is my point about the difference in speeds from the training aircraft avro 5 504 series of aircraft the trainee pilot would can, be Gary, in the can front i just stop you because i want to make clear that the most famous of those was the avro 504 k and, and i just wanted to interpret oh, the k yeah the k lovely lovely Lovely. Not the J. No, no, inferior. Mm. Now, the training pilot, as I was saying before, rudely interrupted, <laughs> would would be in the front seat and the instructor behind. Now, they'd each have a complete set of controls and a speaking tube between them to allow proper communication. And that, that you know, that still persists to this day, that basic format. And the, steep, the, the speaking tube, which means you can hear without switching the engine off, is called the Gosport uh, tube. It's, it's, you know. Now, what is Smith Barry's training philosophy? Well, it, Let's sum it up again. It, it's necessary to teach every pilot not how to avoid dangerous situations, such as the example you gave as spinning, but how to get out of them with assurance and to build up the self-confidence they'd need if they're going to do this in extremis um, when they're throwing the aircraft about in the sky. And, you know, you might have a hand on your towel, for example. So you can't just fly along. You've got, you've got to... Sp a spinning would be a, a quite a good way of getting out of the way. But you've got to be able to get it out of it. <laughs> you've got to be able to get out of it. It's not, it. Yeah, the skill isn't to put it into a spin. 
the skinnies <laughs> to get out of it. <laughs> now, I'm now gonna, you're, I'm, you're going to be second lieutenant Reginald Full James, a lovely fine name. One morning, I was told that the commanding officer wanted to take me up again. <laughs> this rather shook me because we seldom had any dual control after you'd once gone solo. The CO was Major Smith Barry, and I suppose he treated me as one of his early guinea pigs just to try out a few of his new ideas. I enjoyed the few minutes. <laughs> I had with him enormously. He showed me above anything else how to get out of a spin, which up to that time most of us regarded as fatal. Smith Barry was undoubtedly a genius. The confidence that I could always get out of a spin saved my life on at least one occasion. Wow. That's, that's what we mean, isn't it? Yeah. Now, in time, Smith Barry would revolutionise the training of British pilots. But, like the sock with camels, it would be too late for the pilots who'd have to face Richthofen and his men over Arras in April 1970. And that's, of course, what this is all about. So, basically, we've got good news here, but not for the people who'd fight uh, in the Battle of Arras and the Royal Fly Corps. Uh, but what's the reality for most of those men? Well, it's just a mad rush and a, a fatal lack of practical flying experience in a type of aircraft that they're going to have to fly in action. As one young recently qualified sergeant pilot found, and I'm going to be Sergeant Ernest Cook. Wow. Holy smoke, what a pickle. In London, now destined for overseas squadron unknown. A chap woke me this morning and said I was wanted at the sheds to fly. New instructor told me to do four hours continuous flying and I would be sent to London in the afternoon. Wind up, had breakfast, did two hours, washed, did two more, went to Swindon by car, to London by train. Now, this is just one more innocent young lad being sent off to do or die on the Western Front, isn't it? Do you think uh, Ernest Cook was ready for meeting Rick Doff and his chums? I'm not sure anybody would have been ready for meeting Richthofen and his chums. But at least you need to give people a chance. And, and I, as these young pilots, a lot of them had very little chance of, of surviving. Well, Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure running through Learning to Fly with you. It is, Pete. And uh, did Smith Barry write Peter Pan before or after the war? He didn't write it. Oh. <laughs> Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com.pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?